0: Hello and welcome to the Zoe Roth Leadership Podcast. If you are a first-time listener, welcome. It's great to have you here. And if you're a return listener, thank you. Thank you so much for letting me fill the space between your ears at least for a little while. I am Zoe Routh, I am a leadership expert who specializes in people stuff. I've been a canoe trip leader across Canada, an outward bound instructor, a leader of great teams, and a learner from terrible mistakes. (laughs) And I'd want to help you avoid those ones. I believe a better world will come with better leadership and it's my very great pleasure to share insights from leaders, in this Points of View series. And today, we have Frank Fumi, And he is a New Yorker uh, who now lives in Florida. And he has written the book, Running With My Head Down, an entrepreneur's story of passion, perseverance, and purpose. And it is such a delight to hear his story. He is a pioneer in the youth sports industry and the founder of I-9 Sports. It's the U.S.'s first and leading franchisor of youth leagues and camps. What a strange industry, but Fantastic. Can you believe these statistics? Since 2003, i9 has generated over $300 million with more than 2 million participants in 900 communities, and they're close to 950 franchises across the US. Amazing story, great insights about what it takes to be an entrepreneur, the highs and lows, and the meaning you can take from it. So let's do it. Oh, well, today joining us from Florida, which sounds fantastic, is Frank Fumi, who is the author of Running With My Head Down, an entrepreneur's story of passion, perseverance, and purpose. And I totally love this book, and I'm thrilled to have you on the podcast today, Frank.
1: Thank you for having me, so we appreciate it.
0: Woohoo. So Florida, how good yes. is it?
1: The weather's real nice right now. It is a little warm. Um, But we'll be happy once it gets to the winter and it cools off just a little bit. It's been hot for a long time. So it'll be nice for a little bit of change. We don't get much of a much of a season here in the Tampa Bay area, but we go from hot to hotter. So we're looking to get back to hot.
0: Yeah. I think that's why so many Canadians flock to Florida. They call them snow geese. So every winter (laughs) Canadians disappear to Florida to soak up the sunshine. Uh, Yes. And I guess I'm a bit of a snow goose as well, being a Canadian who went to Australia, a bit further afield than Florida. You sure did. Yeah, yeah. Um, So let's talk about your story. Like, this was an amazing book. So the headline is like, you know, Rags to Riches story, a story of entrepreneurial success. And my experience of the book was quite a bit different. I loved how you faced all these different challenges and reinvented yourself. But I think the big question I'd like to start off with, because what your business was about, I-9 Sports, was franchising baseball leagues. Like, what the... (laughs) You actually, how do you get to do that? Like, that's just a bizarre thing.
1: True. No, that that's absolutely true. When people thought I was thought I was crazy. Right before that, Zoe actually started an adult men's softball league. So during my years of, I was in medical sales when I got out of college, and on the weekends I was playing softball, just recreational softball with my college friends and. I saw these guys were running leagues. The leagues that we were playing in, they were pretty expensive to play in. They were so disorganized. And I thought this might be a business. And but it wasn't being run like a business. But and sure enough, I found that it was so fragmented and you know there were opportunities there despite how much quote unquote competition there was and no availability of fields and all the, you know, the stuff we hear about in any business, right? There's always challenges and obstacles. So I started running the Softball League. And in New York and the thing really took, before you know it, within six years, we were the largest league in New York. We had almost a thousand teams playing. Each team had like, oh, 15, 20 guys on a team. So the league was pretty huge.
0: This is like Um, a recreational thing, right? It's not a professional Yeah, just a recreational, no, not at all.
1: Just recreational on the weekends. Like People call it a bar league, right? So it wasn't a bar league, but it was a recreational league. When my wife and I moved to the Tampa Bay area in 1996, within like a year or two, I heard that the NFL wanted to start uh, offering flag football leagues for kids as more like an outreach program to kind of promote football. And I thought, oh my gosh, I think that they're onto something here. This is a great opportunity because, you know, you have the whole concussion safety issue and football, tackle football was starting to see a decline. And I thought, you know, if I just took, the skills that I had on the know-how and my system of how to run my leagues, my softball leagues and apply it to kids programs, you know, maybe we'll be to something. So I started running a kids flag football league. We got a hundred kids in the first season. The next season I got 600 kids and that's where franchising came in because at that point my wife and I were like, okay, we've got leagues in New York. We've got leagues in Florida we know we can expand this and I want to expand rather quickly before somebody else kind of hops on this flag football thing for kids. So I started doing a lot of research and I found that, you know, franchising for us made a lot of sense because one, I had never hired a whole bunch of people before I didn't have a whole lot of capital. So to be able to have to use other people's capital to start my, and to grow my company and for them to have skin in the game, so to speak was really attractive. So sure enough, I found a consulting firm out of Chicago that um, that's a, um, a fantastic consulting company for people that want a franchise called the iFranchise Group. And uh, it took me about six months to make me, quote unquote, franchise ready. The important thing is I had a system in place, so I already knew how to do this. So lo and behold, by 2003, we franchised i9 Sports is what I named it. And uh, we started running flag football leagues for kids, so It was flag football, soccer, basketball, and t-ball. So baseball was just one of the four sports we started.
0: <laughs> That's amazing. Like you, like it's interesting when you start off. Like uh, I want to do something that I'm interested in in baseball, and that it morphs into a business, and it expands and grows and so on. That sounds all very linear, but I know from reading your book, it was not a linear experience. And particularly <laughs> in the beginning, it was. I think um, this book was really a roller coaster ride uh, in terms of listening to your story and seeing all the highs and lows that you went through. And I think early on, there was a couple of really pivotal moments that you experienced that set the trajectory or changed the trajectory of your life. I'm wondering if you could speak to two of them or more. Uh, the poverty and pizza man experiences. like <laughs> Those were early in the book and they, they, yeah. they seem profound and quite pivotal for you. So tell us about mm. that.
1: Well, my parents got divorced when I was nine years old. And like so many kids that go through a parent's divorce, it's kind of devastating, right? Uh, Obviously, it's a huge upheaval in their life. And my life was no different what I would say was kind of unique from some people I've spoken to that have gone through the experience of of being a child of divorce is I kind of lived a tale of two lives. Uh, My dad was much more affluent. My mom struggled. My sister and mom and I kind of Jump from apartment to apartment, renting in Queens, New York. Uh, Some of the apartments, not so nice. Basement apartment, uh, apartment with uh, infestation, the whole bit. (laughs) Uh, We would go to my dad's every other weekend. And my dad lived a completely different life, actually. He had a really nice home on the water on Long Island with the big boat in the backyard on the dock and everything. And I'll tell you, it's kind of confusing as a kid to live in poverty and see wealth. It really though, here's the thing though, Zoe, it made me who I am today because it it allowed me to have the opportunity to see how both, quote unquote, both sides live. At the end of the day, it's really about happiness, it's about love, it's about being around family. it did set a foundation for me, though, of gratitude, a foundation also of having a a desire that there's no way I was ever going to grow up in poverty, that I was absolutely determined. During high school, you mentioned the pizza man. <laughs> so during high school, I worked part-time at a pizza place. It was just a little corner mom-and-pop pizza joint The guy who was the manager there was just a real jerk. And he, if he wasn't uh, sleeping on the bags of flour in the back room, he was pretty much just kind of yelling at people. And, you know, he would always tell me, you know, Frank, Andrew, who was a friend of mine who actually got me the job, Andrew, he's going to be something someday, but you, you're nothing more than a loser and you're not going to be anything.
0: Why would I he say why. that to you? Like- I have no idea.
1: He, he, he just liked to annoy people, right? It's kind of irritating, right, to have some an adult tell you this?
0: I was more uh, than irritating. That's just heartbreaking.
1: It, it kind of is. But, you know, I while I would let it roll off my back, you know, you're still having somebody telling you you're nothing more than a loser. I mean, yeah. my parents didn't tell me anything like that. Nobody else did. So here's the thing, though, Zoe. I, I was so absolutely hell-bent on, you know, being successful. One of the, for me, another part of the foundation in giving me some confidence was it was during that time when I actually got into high school that I applied for a private high school. My dad paid for the for the high school. I felt so grateful that he was willing to do that. And this all boys high school in Queens, New York, Holy Cross High School, really, again, set the foundation for me, teaching me things like integrity and leadership, uh, service and faith and all those things really kind of helped set, set the tone for me. And of course, I would be remiss without saying that my mom also played a huge role in my life growing up because my mom she kept my sister and I so well grounded and always grateful for whatever, for everything we have. Even if we had seemed like a little bit to us, it seemed like a lot. And that, uh, that helps set the tone for us as well.
0: I want to just check back in on some of those early experiences, like the contrast between your living with your mom and then visiting with your dad and the poverty versus affluence situation. What were the emotions that came up for you during that? I mean, it's confusing. Yeah. It's totally
1: but, confusing.
0: But, yeah. Um, I mean. Was there resentment or frustration as you, as you went between the two?
1: There was, there was, there was, I mean, for the obvious reasons, um, you know, you don't have air conditioning, you don't have, and you're struggling to have heat in your apartment and, um, in a multifamily apartment building, when you put the kitchen light on, the bugs are running up and down the walls is one thing. And then you get picked up on Friday night after school in the sports car and you're driven out to Long Island in a, uh, you know, high ranch home on the water. And it's, it is confusing and you don't understand it at the time. You're, you're kind of angry. My mom would say when my dad would drop us back off, she would say it would take like a day or two before she quote unquote got her kids back because we were kind of altered over those couple of days. Not like my dad was doing anything to uh, alter our, our thought process, but it was it was confusing to see wealth and poverty. Uh, you know, my dad would always say, listen, I give your mother enough money. I give her alimony and child support, but that wasn't enough. And my mom worked hard. She worked two jobs. She worked overnights in a factory, in a lamp factory, putting lamp switches, uh, assembling lamp switches in the evening or she was developing film for uh, a film company back in the 80s. Uh, And then during the day, she worked for a nonprofit for the Catholic Youth Organization in their back office. So look, I really got the opportunity to see how important it is to work hard and also to work smart. My dad uh was a cardiac technician. He ran the the heart lung machine for a, a hospital in New York City. He had a very prominent job. He was very well known for his uh in his trade. And um, you know, he he had come a very, very long way too himself. So it helped set the tone for me. I don't have any resentment today at all. It's part of my experience. Mm-hmm. And it helped me again, it helped make me who I who I am. And it also allowed me to making sure that when my wife and I met and we had kids, that we were going to absolutely set a solid foundation for our kids to have gratitude. It's not about how much you have, it's how much you appreciate.
0: And that was a lesson that took a while to learn that one, wasn't it?
1: Oh, heck yeah, (laughs) that did. (laughs) Yeah, it took a long time. It took a long time for sure.
0: So you reading the story in the book about you were a high, like a high achiever, you were very ambitious, and you didn't want to rest on your laurels at any given stage. And you got to a point where there's a couple times you mentioned in the book where you you fell into overworking. And I resonate with that, because I'm a bit the same, like I tend to push myself too hard and the body gives out. What were some of your experiences around that where you you were pushing, 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 and the thing that gave up was your health?
1: Well, you know, type A personalities we don't know when to turn off, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Here's what happened for me. You know, again, when I got out of college, I first started working in medical sales. It wasn't my dream. Dad suggested that I go into medical sales for a lot of good reasons. You know, it was very uh, it was very lucrative, but it wasn't my dream and and I was very unhappy in it. And when I started that adult men's softball league and it wasn't making much money, I was so hungry to succeed, like there was no freaking way I was going to fail. And when, you know, you're running the softball league, it grows, you go through ups and downs, and then starting I-9 sports and franchising that concept. And again, that success was not a straight line. It was a zigzag with many highs and lows. I think the more lows you experience and you withstand them and you have the perseverance like there's no way I'm giving up, it drives you harder when you come out of it. And that's what happened for me. And I got to the point though, 2008 was a pivotal year for me. Not really so much just because of the recession, but because of 2008, by then, I had been running I-9 sports for five-ish, five years. And we had come out of a really steep low and we had turned the corner, but I was working so hard and I didn't have any other executive in my company. I was the, pretty much, I was the, I was it, right? So our organization chart was pretty flatlined. It was me and then there was like, everybody else and it was time to bring somebody on that was gonna really be hiring to my weakness somebody that was gonna be a, um, a CEO president that's when I realized I was an overload I just can't do it anymore and my health started you know it started failing for sure and I started getting burned out
0: yeah so the, and then you went into another low so I'm interested in the how to get through the low so listening to what how you described it so getting to a low you just worked harder to get through it. Um, Which,
1: and, and yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt there. Uh, I don't think you could work. I, I don't think you could work through the low without making a change. So I'll tell you okay. really quick. Here's some of the things that I did to get through the low. I hired to my weakness. That's number one. Hire. So many people hire the person that they just, they like the person or they connect with them. I knew I was a visionary for my business. I knew I was somebody who had all the ideas. I was also responsible for implementing them. Don't get me wrong but I'm not a systems and processes guy. That's what I needed. So really the way I got out of that burnout low was hiring to my weakness, hiring Brian, who today is the CEO and chairman of i9 sports. The second thing I realized too was that, you know, I would take these extra time off on the weekends. I would take off on Monday and thinking it's going to rejuvenate me. And it didn't. I would go on vacation with the family, maybe take a little extra vacation thinking it's going to help me recover and I'd come back and it didn't excite me. And I realized it was more than just taking time off. I needed a better life balance. So spending time with my wife and kids, dedicated time together, quality time, not me coming home and the first thing I do is putting opening the laptop on the kitchen counter, which is exactly what I used to do. Mm-hmm. And my wife used to say, can you just give me a couple of hours after the kids go to bed You can go back on the computer all you need to. And unfortunately, it was the things I needed to do to get the business where it did. But having a life balance was second. The third thing I would say is key for anybody watching this, if you're experiencing burnout or experiencing a low, is get around a peer group of people, whether it's the Entrepreneurs Organization, EO, or YPO, listening to podcasts like these or getting a book or going to like a Tony Robbins, a personal development event. You got to be around a peer group of people of other entrepreneurs that are going through what you're going through because it'll resonate with them and with yourself. And you can really bounce, not just bounce ideas off of each other, but I think uh, in, in, in a nice way of putting Misery Loves Company, you can really kind of, you can get through with other people who have gotten to the other side. Like this podcast here, where we're talking about how to get, you know, how to get on the other side of it. Uh, but don't feel like you're alone because a lot of uh, high achievers go through this.
0: So th- that's an interesting one. So in your group of entrepreneur, fellow entrepreneurs, there had been other people who'd been through those big lows and burnout and so on. So did you learn, what did you learn from them?
1: The biggest uh, takeaway I learned from them was I can't be everything, uh, everything for everybody, that I needed to take my company seriously and start hiring, not just to my weakness, but hiring to fulfill bigger roles in the company. So many of us, when we start our company, we start growing we're afraid to make that big hire and make that big investment. We think, oh my gosh, how am I ever going to afford that VP person or that director position? And I've got to say that after now that I went through it, because I went through that same thing where I'm like, I can't afford it. You can't afford not to do it. Your company can only go so far, only as far as you can take it, which I got news for you, news for everybody. You can, you're only one person and you can only work so many hours and you need to surround yourself with a great team of people. And that was the thing that I learned from people who had gone through this burnout experience was to me, the burnout was the alarm bells going off. It was time to wake up realizing that I'm more than my business, right? I need to be healthy and my business is more than me. So if I truly, truly love my business, like I say, I do you give it what it needs. And what you give, what it needs means you get out of your own way. You start hiring quality people. And when you hire quality people and you have a right strategy, the company grows, you could afford those people.
0: Oh, that's such a good message. I needed to hear that (laughs) for myself because we're Uh, in the middle of up leveling and hiring. And it's, I've been seriously just sitting in, uh, worry about it. It's like, Oh my God, am I going to be able to afford this? Like, are we going to be able to create the revenue that we need to support these people? But, um, you're right. If you, you can't grow without the support, otherwise you are just kind of on the treadmill, um, you can't. and then so I keep going.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, probably one of the best pieces of advice i ever gotten was when I needed to make a big hire. You know, it was a six-figure hire, and I was so nervous about making this position hire. And I talked to a consultant friend of mine who had been in franchising for years. And he said to me, Frank, what are you so worried about? And I said, Joe, there's no way I could afford, I think it was like a $125,000 salary at the time. I said, there's no way I could afford it. He said, Frank, you're not paying the guy $125,000 up front. He said, look, six months in. If he's not performing, you paid sixty-five thousand dollars, sixty thousand dollars. You didn't pay $125. I was like, oh yeah, he goes, there's no way you're gonna let him let somebody go a whole year without performing. I had never thought of that. You know, I looked at the big salary and I'm like, how am I gonna afford that? But it's true. If somebody isn't working out, they're not gonna stick around for a whole year. You're not gonna allow it. So the key message was if you're gonna make a hire, hire A people. Hire a players. If you hire C players, you're going to get D level work.
0: <laughs> that's so true. <laughs> At best. Yeah. Yeah. We're not that's hiring
1: for C level players if you if you're going to take your company serious. So, that's that was probably one of the best piece of advice I had ever heard.
0: Yeah, that and that's an excellent piece of advice. So um, the title of the book, Running With My Head Down, when I first saw that, I said, I'm like, that sounds really depressing (laughs) (laughs) and silly. Like, why would you run with your head down? And then you reveal in the book the story about where that title came from. And it was, again, another pivotal moment for you. Um, So I believe it was your dad who said, you're always just running with your head down. You're not really looking up and considering where you're going. And that sparked like this burning well, I experienced it as a burning rage in your book that catapulted you forward. So, what what happened there?
1: So it was. Look, when I was in college, I knew I loved sports. Sports was my life before growing up as a kid. I was super passionate about baseball. So, not just watching on TV and playing and listening on the radio and playing in little league, but I had board games. I created leagues. I was a kid who tore apart my backyard and turned it into a a, a wiffle ball uh, field and created leagues out of that. I was like addicted to baseball, but sports was my life. And when I got to college and I learned that there was a major for sports management, I said to my dad, Oh my gosh, dad, I can't believe this. There's a degree for sports management. And my college had internships with all the professional teams in New York city uh, for baseball, football, basketball, hockey. And I'm thinking this is for me. My dad looked into it. He goes, let me look into it. And he calls me back the next day and he goes, you don't want to do it. I said, why not? And he said, I have a friend who's a former kicker for the New York Jets. And he said, the only people that ever get a job in pro sports are former professional athletes. And if you take that major, you're going to get out of school, you're going to get a job and you can be nothing more than an elementary school teacher making $17,000 a year. So I listened to him. He scared me.
0: Yeah. That's a really low salary. (laughs) (laughs) $17,000 a year. Wow. my God.
1: So then I After um, I graduate with a bachelor's degree in business management, I thought, you know what? I love sports so much. You could see like, my purpose is coming back, right? This whole passion for sports. And I decide, you know what? Maybe sports go to law school for sports management, uh, become a sports agent. So once again, I take the testing. I've got a a test score high enough to get into my first choice. It's Cal Western of San Diego. They specialize in sports and entertainment law. Super excited. I tell dad, dad, I'm going to get a law degree. And he says to me, you don't want to do that. And I said, why not? He said to me, there's too many lawyers. You'll be $70,000 in debt and you're never going to make it. And it really ticked me off. But I listened to him when he said, listen, will you listen to me for just once? There's in medical sales, you can make six figures and have the company car and the benefits and, you know, and this expense account. I could have made my own decision. I take full responsibility. I'm accountable for my own actions, Zoe. So look, I chose to listen to him when he told me don't major in sports management. I listened to him when he told me not to go into law school. And I listened to him when he told me to actually go into medical sales. So I am accountable and responsible for all my own actions. But by the time I got to the point in medical sales where I hated it, and I got to the point where I wanted to run my sports league and I wanted to do it full time, And I said, hey, dad, I'm going to, I'm quitting medical says I'm going to do this full time. He was livid. And he told me, oh, he was furious. He said to me, one, he said, you have golden handcuffs. You make too much money doing what you do. You can never leave that job. You're probably a side note. You probably know that he was in his job successfully for 30 years. He never left. He went from the Navy to that one job. That's his personality. It just didn't match up with mine. See, we're two totally different people. So it's not to put him down or put me down. We're two different people with two different driving forces. And when I said, I'm going to run my sports league, he said to me, you're always shooting from the hip and you're always running with your head down absolutely infuriated me. And I forgot about, I wrote him a letter, and I forgot totally about the letter um, until when I was writing this book, because the book is really, I wanted to demystify success and, and inspire people on through my entrepreneurial journey and how they can succeed and pursue their passion, find their purpose. I was going through old notes and I found the letter I wrote my dad. And the very first sentence of that letter I wrote to him back in 1995 was a quote from him. And it started with running with your head down, dot, 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 shooting from the hip. And I'm like, that's it. I found the headline for the book. (laughs)
0: because <laughs> it was so it wasn't true for you like you actually thought about all these yeah. you thought very carefully about each step um,
1: absolutely here's the difference so I have kids I have a 21 year old daughter and 18 year old son it's not that I don't will first of all I will never tell them not to do something but my goal as a parent is to help them if they have a goal is to help them how to achieve it give them reasons let's figure out together on how we can help you achieve this goal, not give me all the reasons why something won't work. See, I never got any reasons why something would work. I was always told why something would not work. And that really infuriated me.
0: I can understand that. And it's all well intentioned, of course. Like your dad just wanted to protect you and keep you being successful as you had been in the medical career, right. uh, the medical sales career. And yet, Learning how to think positively and proactively is different than thinking critically. And you actually need to do both uh, in order to be successful.
1: Right. And I tell people that all the time that number one, when I tell them the story, I always couch it with there is not, hasn't been anybody I've ever met that started a business or want to switch careers that didn't hear from the doubters and naysayers, their family and friends. And it's not that they don't want you to succeed. They care about you. They love you. The fact is my dad loved me and wanted me to succeed. He just didn't want me to get hurt. Right. And the other thing that I found is that I've learned along the way that usually what happens when somebody tells you they don't think it's a good idea if you do something, it's because they don't see themselves doing that. Oh, that's a
0: wonderful insight.
1: Yeah. If somebody can't envision themselves doing that job or that career or that goal, if they can't see that through, they don't have that same vision that you have. They're going to be more protective and they are going to give you the reasons be why it won't work. So I'm so proud of my dad and I'm proud of the advice he had given me. And I know he only wanted the best for me, but it comes back to the same thing that we're two different people with two different driving forces. I was much more entrepreneurial. I had this entrepreneurial spirit and he was much more conservative. And his goal was to work hard in that company, in that hospital for 30 years and get to retirement and live happily ever after. And he's done that.
0: And what did he think about, because obviously you stuck to your career path and set up the franchises. Did he ever change his opinion? Did he ever come back to you and say, well, you know, you didn't follow the medical thing and now you've done this franchising of I-9 sports. Did he ever reframe his interpretation of what you did? Yeah,
1: played? yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was proud of me. He's you know was beyond proud of me and said, I like, you know, can't believe you created what you did and super proud of me about the franchise company. So that, there's no question about it. He, he definitely reframed it and, and saw the light. I got to the point though, at the end of my realizing that my fulfillment, my vision of i9 sports was kind of fulfilled. I knew it was I got to this point where I realized it was time for me to move on and I had a conversation with him and I was like dad I think it's time for me to move on from the company and you know he always say well you know you're getting older now I was in my 40s It's <laughs> well <As> you're <laughs> getting older now you can start thinking about slowing down and I'm going slowing down I'm not slowing down
0: <laughs> in your 40s in my 40s oh, my like well, you might
1: you know you can start thinking about it and this but it's different you know a different philosophy to me retirement retirement means what retirement means when you can retire when you do nothing i mean for me i always want to grow Um, maybe my, my job, my career, my business might look different, but I'm not the kind of person that just wants to, you know, sit on the beach or play golf, uh, as so many people do. And they enjoy that. That's just not for me.
0: So I love this sort of different iterations of success that you've had throughout your career. And it seems to me in reading the book and speaking with you is that success has meant different things along your journey. Can you tell us a little bit about that, the different evolutions of success for you?
1: Gosh, well, yeah, you know, when I was in my 20s, my definition of success was to be self-employed. That was like the greatest thing in the world because it was sort of taboo in my company, as you know, from the experience I had growing up about getting that job. So to be self-employed was quote unquote success. And then when I became self-employed and struggled, as we all do, we're starting out, my definition of success was how do I get to replacing my six-figure income and then after replacing the six-figure income it was okay how do I make a million dollars you know like it never ends and I got to this point though so we were growing the company you know you get more and more employees and at one point we had over 115 employees and we had locations i9sports has 900 plus locations across 30 states from coast to coast and Now over 300,000 kids every year play in R9 sports leagues. Over 2 million kids kids have played in our leagues since 2003. But I got to that point, though, a few years ago where it didn't really matter how much more money. Like lifestyle wasn't going to change. My wife and I are not the kind of people that we aspire to just like flying around in private jets. Like we didn't have that kind of money at all. But it got to the point where I realized I don't think I'm fulfilled in this business anymore like I think the vision for the business as far as I can take it is I'm, I'm there and it was time for me to move on and I had this epiphany where I realized it was actually at a Tony Robbins uh, business mastery event when I realized that hearing Tony say success without fulfillment is ultimate failure
0: yeah that's powerful it,
1: it struck me between the eyes and I realized my definition of success really had to evolve into fulfillment and that's what i feel it is today because ultimately that's what it was always about if you go back to my desire to be self-employed what was that really about it was about freedom it was about fulfillment when i started my softball league it was about fulfillment when i started i9 sports and providing leagues for kids around the country it was always about fulfillment it was never about money i just didn't see it that way when i was younger so it was
0: like, um, it was like the goals were the mask for yes, the feeling, right? So exactly. it was like the tangible outcomes were what you thought you were chasing, but really it was that inner sense of satisfaction.
1: Right. Cause we want to be satisfied. At the end of the day, we have these, we all have these same human needs of growing and contributing, not just to our own life, but to the lives of others. And all those things were happening. But when you're, starting out your business, you, your level or definition of success, at least mine was it, was, it was tied to a dollar amount.
0: So now that you've refined the, your insight around success is about fulfillment, if you tease out fulfillment a little bit, what makes life or work fulfilling for you now?
1: Um, well, I feel like I, I, my goal or my what makes me fulfilling is to inspire others. So I like to say that I want to use my goal, my purpose today is to use like my creativity and my enthusiasm to inspire others to live a happy and fulfilling life, because I've had the good fortune now of going through those highs and lows as a kid and starting the business and dealing with the doubters and naysayers and growing it all the way through. And through that, I want to use creativity, whether it's through writing of my book, through public speaking, through being a, a guest of yours here on this podcast, It's through all these type of of vehicles that I hope to inspire others. So that's how it's evolved for me.
0: Yeah, that's quite a different machinations. And before we started the recording, we were talking about the, you know, reaching the pinnacle of the mountain and going, is this it? Uh, And you had an experience at least once around that in your business. And that was kind of what we've been talking about. You reach that kind of pinnacle. Like I've, you know, got all these accolades and all this traction and all this growth. And it's, you hit this point where... What next,
1: yeah, like like that's it. Like is that what it's all about? When you get to the top, and the top for everybody is a little bit different for me, the top at one point was I wanted to get to a thousand franchise locations. I don't know why I came up with a thousand. It was a number that popped in my head. I guess it sounded good. The fact is that by two thousand and seven, we had hit a hundred franchise locations nationwide, and less than 10% of the entire franchise industry hits 100 locations. When we think of franchising, we always think of the McDonald's of the world and Subways and Dunkin' Donuts and those, but there's 4,500 or so US franchise companies. In fact, franchising is very popular in in Australia as well, as I know. And that model, as much as they're out there, not a lot of them hit 100 locations. Well, I had this aspiration of hitting 1,000. And we're close now. We're we're over 900. I think we're about 950 or so. And I'm super proud of it. Don't get me wrong, but it's, again, it goes back to, did the number really matter, right? That top of the mountain? No, it was just some number I made up in my head. Like that was going to define success for me when I got to the top of the mountain, it's enjoying the journey all the way up those highs and lows and, uh, taking the people with you along the way. So when I did sell my company and at first I sold it as an ESOP to my employees, And then later we sold it to private equity. It was an amazing feeling to share in the profit with my employees, the people who got me here, because I certainly didn't get there on my own. It was having an outstanding team of eight players that helped me get there. And to share in some some cases, I mean, we're talking life-changing money for a bunch of people that um, it was incredibly gratifying to go out like that
0: that's an, an that's an enormous shift in worldview and perspective to go from like yeah let's meet these targets and climb this mountain and hit these goals and get these numbers like the it's a different sense of energy isn't it it's like that push and that drive and that and there's something there's something very energizing about it it's the energy of friction though it's like a, it's a battle to overcome and then right. the shift of like it's not just about hitting those things it's about enjoyment and enjoying the journey and, and savoring it and savoring the people around you and saving the family. It's a completely different kind of energy that you've, that you're experiencing in those two different worldviews.
1: Totally. You're right. It's like a push versus pull, right? So I think with that, I needed that pushing early on. Um, I look back and say, Hey, this is, this is how I got there. I got there through pushing, persevering. I always tell people that For uh, me, business is really, it's a mind game. It's really psychology of business is fascinating to me. And the number one trait that I tell people they need to be successful is hunger. And I say that because I've been around hundreds and hundreds of entrepreneurs, right? Because people that bought franchises for me. I've seen success and I've seen failure. And the common thread among the most successful entrepreneurs has been that they were hungry. They had this mentality, they refused to give up. They wanted to win. Um, They won't do whatever it took. The second thing was resilience. So having that flexibility, you know, it's not just saying, hey, I'm not going to quit. In some cases, you have to, as I like to say, appropriately quit, like changing your business model or evolving. Like I quit ABA, the softball league, right? I sold that business to start I-9 Sports. To me, that was appropriate quitting versus giving up that business. So I think that resilience comes in the form of being flexible and continuing to learn from others and then sort of that the third tier of success is fulfillment and that's really your personal growth and contributing to the life of others so it is quite a shift for sure i don't know if you can get there early on but i think it takes uh so much resilience and um building that right team to get you to that point where you can then look back and go ah this was all worth it
0: yeah that's sort of what i'm glad you said it um- because as, as you're talking, like I'm, I was wondering, do you have to go through the hungry phase in order to get to the fulfillment and enjoying the journey phase? And um, I think you answered it just then. It's like, yeah, I think you actually do need to go through that desire and craving and pushing. Yeah, I think you have to go through the push before you get to the pull. And certainly the research I've done in leadership development uh, it's definitely a stage that leaders go through, that achiever stage, which is all about constructing goals and achieving goals before you get to the, mm-hmm. that pivotal moment where you shift into, oh, there's actually a different right. way of doing things. Um, right. So it's good. I think it's good that your three tips there about having the, you know, being hungry and developing resilience and knowing when to successfully quit or appropriately quit. And then the tipping point into fulfillment so you can go into a different gear. Yeah, I
1: don't think you can get to fulfilling until you get to hunger first. I look at it like baseball analogy. (laughs) First base is (laughs) hunger. Like that's that's number one. You can't get to second base until you get to first first. So to me, hunger was number one. And then you're not gonna get past first base and get past hungry if unless you're resilient. I've seen people that were hungry before, but then they couldn't withstand the dark days. So you've got to be able to be resilient. And resilient means okay, oh crap, I got to be flexible. I got to make changes in the business because hunger only gets you so far.
0: Yeah, that's right. right.
1: Yeah, you got to be smart, too, in your business, anticipating change, um, hiring to your weakness, all those things that I kind of went through. And then after you turn the corner or turn second base and you're kind of heading to third, it's like, OK, wait a minute here. This business is not about me. It's about contributing to others. It's about my personal growth. And personal growth also means getting past what I like to call founder-itis inflammation of the founder which a lot of us get where we need to be involved in every decision and we can't delegate and we you know don't want to hear from outside experts and it's exhausting to have founderitis you need to get past that otherwise your company's not going to grow you're never going to get home and score that run it's never going to happen
0: yeah <laughs> that's true that's a wonderful insight too and it's only when we get past ourselves and realize that, yeah, it's not about us at all. It's about what the company and the organization and everybody else does for everybody else that you get to that point where you can actually morph into something that has larger significant contribution. So right. you've, um, in the book you talk, a, like you, you went to a number of different Tony Robbins events and I've done Unleash the Power Within as well. I've done the Firewalk. So I understand a little bit nice. of, of the Tony Robbins experience, but well, you've been to a number of different seminars and it seems like you, whenever you hit one of those lows, you went to a seminar to take you to a new level. Yeah. How has that been important to you? Like, what was the experience like for you in each of those pivotal transitions?
1: Wow. You're right. Cause every time I went to an event, I had like a major breakthrough. So what happens for me, and I think for so many others is when we're in our same you know, we're in our home, we're in our office, we're in the same four walls and ceiling. We're around the same people listening to the same thing. We're not really getting where We're not growing. We kind of get stuck and you need to kind of get outside of that environment and get into something, you know, into a new environment to open yourself up to new ideas. As many Tony events I've been to, because some people have asked me, how do you go to the same event multiple times over the course of years? And I tell him because my brain <laughs> is not ready for certain things at a certain time. Like things will resonate with you at certain times of your life. I'll give you an example. So when Tony said in 2015 at business mastery, when he said success without fulfillment is ultimate failure, that would not have resonated with me in 2005 because I was hungry and I was about go, go, go. And then when he said, if you don't have passion for what you do, you owe it to yourself and you owe it to your company to get out. Again, that didn't resonate with me had I heard it in 2005. But when I was there in January 2015, and I was like, oh, my gosh, he is speaking directly to me. So that's why I find that going to these events, you're going to hear things that are going to resonate with you during some part of your life or not. The other thing that I would highly suggest to folks that are going to go to any sort of personal development event or read a book and want to apply it it's all about what you do after the event or after you've read the book or after you listen to the podcast because we have a tendency to go to like a tony event we come off this super high right you walked on fire and you felt you could have done anything right after you walked across that fire right yeah that's right yeah but what happens when you go home on monday You know, you're not walking on fire. You're not not in state, as Tony would say. We need to put yourself in state and create rules, create a process for yourself of how you're not going to live a life of any regrets. You're not going to do things the same way. So the thing that I think that I'm proud that I've done so well over the years is I've gone to a personal development program and I leave there with set, actionable goals that I want to achieve and how I'm going to do it. And I start applying it. So I'm not like a, uh, what do you call the, uh, these seminars, these event junkies. I'm not just like an event junkie or a groupie and just goes to these things. And, you know, you know, they love Tony. They just go to see Tony. I love Tony too, but I'm going there to learn something. And Tony's been a great mentor for me, but it's what you do after the event that separates the people who are going to get their money's worth and really do something with it.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Practical advice. So You've left the running of i9sports now. You're still on the board. Is that right?
1: Still a minority shareholder. Uh I'm still on the board. It's still my baby. (laughs) I'm like the grandparent. (laughs) I get to go there, see the kids, hold them, (laughs) wave to them, play with them, and then give them back to mommy and daddy. I love it.
0: That's awesome. So what's next for you? I mean, you've written this book and it took a while to get this out. And so what's your next phase of contribution and, and growth for you?
1: Gosh, the, the thing that I'm super excited about is speaking to business grad students, talking about that mindset, the psychology of business, because in I think the institutions, uh, the schools that I've been to and the schools that I've been around, they do a great job of the outer game, I call it the fundamentals of business, you know, accounting, management, marketing, operations, finance but they don't really talk enough about the psychology of business and how to have a winning mindset. So just last week, I returned to my alma mater for the first time in 30 years. And I got a chance to talk to uh, MBA students in that are there for entrepreneurship and innovation about just that, about the mindset that you need the inner game mindset. And I also went to my old high school for the first time since I graduated too. So next for me is to talk to grad students about business and uh I'm looking to uh to kind of share and spread the word more about uh, you know, my story and how they can break through.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Frank, that was really wonderful. It was so good to meet you live, well, across the internet anyway. <laughs> and to hear <laughs> well, thank you. It was my pleasure Oh, it was so good. Um I loved the book. I thought it was really well written. It was an adventure reading it and it's been a joy meeting you. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, it was
1: so nice meeting you, Zoe. Thank you so much.
0: Hey, I loved Frank's suggestions in this podcast. I thought he had some wonderful insights. And I love the key takeaway of what will you do after you intend a leadership program or listen to a podcast? So I thought about this. What will I do after having listened to Frank? And I think one of his suggestions was to hire for your weakness, which is good because I'm going through that process right now. We are expanding our team and it makes me nervous and excited. So that was really good advice. The next one is to redefine success. How are you currently defining success and is that working for you? Can you expand it so that you are enjoying the journey as well as the destination? That it's the climb up the mountain as well as the view from the height that is important. And the third piece of advice is to make sure that you join a group and have the company of like-minded thinkers. And if you want to join a like-minded group of thinkers, sign up for our newsletter. I write weekly blog posts on leadership, and that way you will immerse yourself in a community of leaders who are interested in advancing the prosperity and abundance of the world through better leadership. And there's a link right in the show notes, so you can hop on that. You'll get your People Stuff Toolkit, which will help you build an engaged culture, and you'll be right in there with the rest of us learning and leading well. All right, have a great day.